Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I will be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brudico. First, I'm glad to be back from my trip to Europe last month, and I'm sorry I missed the show. Um, again, today, Ronaldo is our president, as you all know, of the World Business Academy. I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Bernal will be covering several broad-ranging topics, along with our lightning round and also our financial literacy section. As always, we include some questions and comments from you, our audience, that we've already received uh, in queue uh, through emails. Um, if you'd like to place a question, please email us in the future at info at worldbusiness.org, and we will be happy to raise your questions and talk about those issues in the next show. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas that you can use in relationship to today's economy and today's business markets. Today we're going to be focusing on a couple of issues, the first being the Move to Amend movement, uh, which is in response to the U.S. Supreme Court's radical decision in Citizens United that held that corporations have free speech rights and can spend unlimited amounts to influence elections. Our, subic, I'm sorry, our second main topic is going to be the Eurozone crisis, which continues to go on and on and on. This weekend, on the 17th, we have Greek elections, uh, which will have some impact as to whether or not they're going to stay in the European Union as, or stay within the currency, certainly, not necessarily the Union. Um, and we're also going to segue into the impact of those actions on other countries, other economies and currencies, with a particular emphasis on Brazil. Uh, we will do our lightning round in the middle of the show, which, as always, is a quick series of comments and insights onto various asset classes, including bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. Ronaldo, as always, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our members and those people who listen in with concrete actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to the general population. Can you expand upon this in relation to our theme today and exactly what this means today? Thank you, Howard, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, today's um, going to sound like we're talking a little more politics than economics, but the truth is it's really all about economics. And to understand economics, you have to understand the politics. Uh, I was impressed with an interview over the weekend by Rahm Emanuel, the uh, former uh, chief of staff to the White House, President Obama, who uh, went and you know became elected the mayor of Chicago, in a nonpartisan post in which he made some interesting comments, including the fact that he was really more than happy to talk about what uh, unions could do to participate together with corporations to achieve common solutions, and that he, even though he was a lifelong dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, would would be more than happy to have the unions continue to contribute to the solutions as they did in the GM and Chrysler bailouts. So he basically sent a signal, I think, that there's a new day that has dawned where um, labor unions, management, the people at large need to all come together. I would point out, though, that the number one group, he, the stakeholder group he didn't mention that I think is the most important of all, and that is we, the consumers. In other words, consumers with their buying power have this enormous ability to affect decision-making, to affect politics, and by affecting politics to affect their own personal economic future. So just starting with um, uh, the, uh, the election, which occurred in Wisconsin, uh, a number of things we have to observe there. One, the effect of Citizens United was that the 
uh, incumbent governor, Scott Walker, who won by seven points, literally outspent his challenger nine to one, which is a staggering amount of money. And as I mentioned to Howard before the show went on, if it would have taken 20 to one, that's what they would have spent. In other words, there's so much money available. And when you have so much money to gain by controlling the political system, you're willing to write checks of any size whatsoever. One man alone, a multi-billionaire casino gambling magnet named Sheldon Edelston, uh, Edelston has already has already donated $31 million just in the last eight months, six months, eight months, and will continue to contribute because he perceives he will make that back times many, many multiples because of his gambling interests and how he would like to continue to have favorable rulings both at the U.S. level and the international level because a lot of his money comes now from Macau and Hong Kong. Well, the point of this was to point out Citizens United. Citizens United said two things that are really quite insane. One, corporations are people. That, to me, is, and most for most people, mind-boggling. In fact, in a recent survey, over 80% of the U.S. public felt that the Citizens United decision was wrong. That is to say that corporations are not people. Of those 80, 65% of the total public said they're extremely concerned about this and want to do something about it. So 65% is kind of a magic number. That's sort of two-thirds. Well, I got a phone call just uh, fairly recently, a couple weeks ago, from a friend of mine. Uh, some of you know, two friends, actually, Ben and Jerry. Um, uh, ben and Jerry of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream. And uh, they called and said that we were, they were supporting Move to Amend, and they were seeking uh, both my support individually and the support of the World Business Academy. We had a conversation about it, and I said, yes, I very much support what you're doing, guys. Uh, I think the idea of amending the U.S. Constitution is now essential, given that the Citizens United decision is, in my humble opinion, one of the worst, or certainly one of the three worst decisions in the history of the United States. The other two would have been the decision of the same Supreme Court when they ordered people not to count the votes in Gorby Bush. So the idea of telling a presidential election that you are stop counting the votes because it might come out the wrong way, which is an order they issued, uh, to me is right up there as one of the three worst decisions ever. It's interfering in a May that was fundamental with the political process. And, of course, the third one in that triumvirate of terrible decisions, which were extraordinarily bad, was the Dred Scott decision from the Roger Taney Court in 1860. Of course, the Roger Taney Court decision of Dred Scott, which held that slavery, in effect, was not only legal, but could be reimposed on someone once they were freed if they accidentally strayed across a border. Uh, that decision led to the Civil War, which was the bloodiest encounter of Americans with other Americans. The decision of, um, of uh, don't count the votes gave us uh, eight years of George Bush, the Iraq War, a failure of the Afghanistan intervention, and a collapse of the U.S. and global economy. So not mild outcomes. The third decision, Citizens United, however, conceivably, is worse than those two. So put your heads on and start calculating the kind of damage I'm talking about here. And that's why even for our international listeners, uh, I, I point out the Wisconsin election, because the Wisconsin election was the first time where we've seen the power of unlimited corporate money and the overwhelming impact it will have on, on politics in the United States. With that in mind, I do want to recommend to our readers and our listeners that move to amend, which is a which is a, a, a movement, a nonprofit movement to amend the U.S. Constitution, basically has two things it wants to do. One, it's saying that money is not free speech. In other words, uh, the idea that how much money you can give somehow is a limitation on your free speech rights under the First Amendment. 
Uh, so move to amend in their constitutional amendment says money is not speech and corporations are not people. Very, very simple. Um, the attempt to amend the U.S. Constitution, however, is extraordinarily difficult. And I want to just focus on that because people even overseas markets need to understand the battle that's going on for the soul of democracy in the United States and the implications to the global financial community as a result. So the question I would pose for everybody as they look at the Citizens United decision is, if this is allowed to stand, how can democracy remain? Because obviously money and the ability to make more money will trump or at least it's my belief that it will trump popular support. And it will take a tremendous amount of organizing, the individual level, which will be difficult to achieve given that money also controls media. And that's exactly what we saw in, this, in Scott Walker uh, re-election recall in Wisconsin. Uh, and, and mind the, you, what, let me pause for a moment. One more, one more, one more fact. Mm -hmm. stop. Okay. And, and Scott Walker was the only governor of 50 governors who had just had three of his aides indicted for federal crimes of running an illegal campaign operation out of the office, literally with a common wall to Scott Walker's office. These were his three top aides. And the question is now whether Scott Walker knew or should have known that there was an illegal boiler room literally going on in the office next to his by his three top aides. He's claimed he did. However, he has hired a federal criminal defense lawyer and a state criminal defense lawyer. Now, he's the only governor of the 50 under that level of cloud and he won by seven points because the unlimited money permitted by Citizens United was a seven to one, a nine to one advantage over the man who wanted to replace him. I'm going to stop with that. But we will we, further on in the conversation. I want to come back to the economic implications of this fight for the soul of democracy in the United States. Yeah, uh, let, let me flip back a little historical point. Uh, when the United States was first founded, the only people who got to vote were at that time landowners. Um, and, again, in that age, that was essentially the aristocracy. Um, how is this corporate control, which is the new financial aristocracy, how is that every, every different from how we founded this country? Well, even ancient Greece, and I might add, even ancient Greece, 90% of the people in ancient Greece, which is supposedly the birthplace of democracy, did not have any rights. Most of them were slaves. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Howard, and, and I think, by the way, I'm glad you threw in ancient Greece because slavery was the norm for a million and a half years of human history until basically the 17th century, when it started to be outlawed in Europe, ultimately it was outlawed in the United States after the Civil War. Now, I, I can think of no institution that is more horrific to human sensibilities than slavery. The idea that a human being is a chattel, in that form, probably having less rights than an animal, actually. And I want to make a parallel here. That statement that I just made is even more true today in huge parts of the Arab world with respect to women. And I think that's what's important is people need to know the patriarchy globally is fighting back. That's why two of the main planks of the Republican platform are to overturn women's access and right to contraception as well as the continuing debate over abortion. So women in the United States are now being threatened with the same turn-back-the-clock that's been going on in the Arab world. And for people who haven't followed it, in Egypt, women are no longer as well-regarded or as free as they were before the revolution in Tahrir Square. So women need to be extremely aware that this is very personal to them. 
Now, you're a man and I'm a man, Howard, so in one sense we can go, hallelujah, the men are going to be back in charge. I personally believe that men being in charge is not a good idea. I believe that the rising status of women is one of the most important, powerful influences of the 20th and 21st century, and is probably one of the few things that could really save us, and I can show you country by country that example is true. Now, let's go back... Wait, there's some interesting statistics uh, regarding, for example, uh, college, college grads. Most college students these days, complete contrast to when you and I were in school, which is several centuries ago, um, majority are women. The majority of law school graduates are women. The majority of medical graduates are women. Uh, there's rise in women in, in fields that are almost traditionally men, such as engineering and, and the hard sciences. Um, yeah, and just, to that, adjust, that and just 10 days enormous ago, social change. No, and just 10 days ago, the Congress went on record blocking equal pay for women. Now, the majority of women, as you say, are now college. Our, our college graduates are majority women today. And yet, just a week ago, the United States Senate, the Republicans, blocked equal pay for women. Now, now that says an enormous amount if you're a woman. And if you're not paying attention, you better be, because it is very personal to you. Now, I want to go back, though, to your point about landowners, because we, we started, you started with the landowners and you went to slavery. Now I'm going to go back to slavery and then back to landowners. So what we found in the modern world is that uh, Lincoln was correct. A, a, country, a nation cannot long survive half slave and half free. And I think that's true. So that told us, as we freed slaves, what we actually did, and if you look at 1864 when slavery ended, you will see that the U.S. economy grew exponentially better for even the white guys. So, yes, the white guys had enormous land holdings before 1864, but nowhere near as much wealth as was accumulated post-1864. That is to say, people held and treated as slaves do not produce an economy that's as strong as a vibrant middle class. The nation of Brazil, the perfect example, we'll be talking about it later, is the example of what happens when you do build middle class. Now, that clear economic lesson also applies to the idea that the founding fathers agreed, and they did, that not only did slaves not count, but only landowners could vote. And the theory was, if you weren't a landowner, you didn't have a sufficient stake in society that you would be a vigilant voter. That was, how, that was the exact logic. And I urge you to look at the Federalist Papers, which articulated this quite clearly. And what we discovered was, if only landowners could vote, they would use the laws to abuse the landless. And, and that's exactly what happened. And it would lead to a series of abuses, the kinds of things that were documented by Upton Sinclair, that if you don't change that, and it took the labor movement in the United States, starting in about 1920, to completely change the society, which eventually crashed in 1929. Right. And frankly, actually, if you go back 100 years earlier, before that, you had incidents such as the Shays Rebellion, in Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, a number of other similar sort of citizen and, and, uprisings. And by the way, and, and a series of financial collapses, been banking collapses with great regularity. The system wasn't stable because, and we had a term for it, the robber barons ran the country. And we called them that, robber barons. Okay? Teddy Roosevelt correctly identified that that was the central problem that was affecting the U.S. economy, and we couldn't become a major global power unless we would restrain the unlimited power of the robber barons. And that's when we started doing this whole change in our perception of who should get to vote and when and how. And, th- well, and we perhaps, began to believe, let me finish, we began to yep. believe that one man, one vote, which is the current law of the land, theoretically, 
is, is a better way to build a society and a more stable economic society at that. Well, so it's, it's not only not politically Florida. enhanced, but it's, it's economically enhanced. Is that? I was going to say, certainly not in Florida, that, that one man, one vote right, rule right. Well, does no, not seem no, to be the case going on there. Well, and, and, and frankly, if you hadn't said that, I was going to. I mean, thank you, Howard. Yeah, Florida's not the only state right now that's engaging in outright voter suppression. The difference well, is that Florida got caught at it. Let's go back to that robber baron phrase. Uh, given that money controls the media, money seems to be controlling elections, uh, it seems like perhaps the strategy uh, of those people who oppose that faction uh, has got to be to re rename um, the elite. And maybe it's the Robert Barron's The Sequel, Part 2. Um, well, we, well, that that needs think, to be a theme that gets pushed out there to the general population so they realize this has historic roots uh, in how, in this battle between the wealth of this, the wealthy of this country, the elite, and the rest of the population has been going on since time immemorial, uh, and that it's necessary to kick back, vote, regain control, and perhaps push something like Move to Amend through uh, to change the rules again. And the yeah, only I, way that happens is when you get massive public participation. Yeah, I think, for example, we have such a name now. We have new nomenclature. It's called the 1% or the 2%. Mm-hmm. And it's clear this society has been run for the benefit of the 1% and 2% for a very long time. It's just that the amount of greed that those people were capable of extracting from the system was limited by some of the restrictions we had in place. Yeah, 1%, the, is, 1% is actually a fairly neutral term. Robert Barron is a lot more... <laughs> descriptive, and perhaps we, we need to get it back into common usage. Possibly. So move to amend is an attempt, and and, and, and and if anybody would like to pursue this further, send us a question, and we'll be happy to go more into history, more into the Founding Fathers, more into any of this. But in order to keep the show moving along today, move to amend has these two simple premises. One, money is not speech. Two, um, um, corporations are not people. And now, thoughtful observers have said, that changing those two could lead to a lot of ambiguity and there's other, some, some other criticisms. And I agree, but that risk is far less to me than that the people could take a stand on two very simple principles. The amount of money you give does not tell me whether or not your speech has been restricted. That's a stretch of the imagination. And number two, um, corporations are not people. And that clearly, in fact, if there was one piece of the move to amend that I would I would say is central to the whole argument, corporations are not people, and 80% of the American public knows that. So now what do they do? Well, unfortunately, 27 attempts have been made to to amend the United States Constitution. All have failed. It's so fascinating to me because, in one sense, it says that we have such a strong backbone in this country called the Constitution that the system of laws based on it, it's almost impossible to change. But, you know, I think we're at that place where this time it, it could and should happen. There are two ways to change the U.S. Constitution. One is you have to get a, 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 an amendment to the Constitution passed by two-thirds of the House and the Senate and then ratified by the states. My suspicion is that's not going to happen this time for all the reasons we've talked about and that basically the, the, the political system has been co-opted by money, as has the judiciary at the top. So now what's the choice? Well, the other choice is to get uh, three-quarters of the states to convene a constitutional convention. And people have always resisted that because when you convene a constitutional convention, it means everything's up for grabs. The entire Constitution's on the table. I think that's probably a good thing right now, and I would recommend we do it. Because we need to have a vigorous debate at the level of the people of the society. We need to have a debate about what we really believe is fundamental. We need to re to shake the dice, so to speak, so well, that we can recreate. Before you go forward, 
Can you can you describe for our listeners, particularly people overseas, but I think most people domestically don't know this as well, what exactly is a constitutional convention and who gets to play and participate and how do those people get to be there? Those are really critical things people need to understand. Well, two-thirds of the state legislatures have to be have to call for it. So if two-thirds of the United States legislature, I mean, two-thirds of the states, call for a constitutional convention, one has to be convened. Now, there is no clear statement of how people are selected to go to such a thing. One would argue that the state legislatures, each in their own uh, sovereignty, would have to appoint or create a system so it would be a state-by-state delegations would be formed. Now, one of the things that's, that's interesting about that is that the original Constitution, 200 years ago or so, uh, it had the same system. Uh, committees were formed, people were sent. Frankly, only the wealthy could afford to take time off to get there. But when they got there, there was such a wide-ranging exchange of views that within period of... And, and, and by the way, Colin Powell made this clear in an interview on the CBS Morning Show with, um, uh, with um, Charlie Rose, that it's amazing what the differences of opinion were going into that room, including the very thorny issue of slavery uh, and the right to vote. There were everything from abolitionists to free traders to isolationists. Uh, I mean, every complexion was represented. But in the spirit of that conversation that went on for four or five months, a new nation was crafted, a constitution was written and accepted, and in fact, they were able to get through all these differences and create something that was meaningful. I believe that we need to do that again because at this point, the impact of Citizens United is so toxic to the society The decision is so wrong. It's like Dred Scott. It means that, and I want to avoid a civil war if possible. Look at the horrific thing that was. And the the world economy actually requires us to be mature politically at this point because the impact we have is far too great. And therefore, we would have to trust that the legislators of those 30, of those 50 states would pick the best people they could of all varying perspectives and, and, and shades, and that those people would go to a central location, I assume Washington, and, and stay there until they could agree on what would be the amendments we would want to require of the U.S. Constitution. Now, that's a free-for-all, no question about it. But it, And I would very rarely say a free-for-all is a good thing, except I think in the, the alternative is to continue down the path we are now, and that path is not only not sustainable, it's going to lead us to bloodshed, I believe. So at this point in time, the best thing we can hope for is a constitutional convention. If one were to occur, and out of that constitutional convention, an amendment of the U.S. Constitution happened, then I believe we would be on a, on a trajectory at least to recover, and people would see that the U.S. democracy was capable of reinventing itself. The problem we have now, Howard, is very simply this, and I'll stop. Because of Citizens United, the unlimited power of corporations were able to take the Republican Party back from the people who had actually taken over the party called the Tea Party, and by outspending them nine to one in this last race, but outspending them by even larger ratios, they were able to reassert Romney as their candidate, even though Rick Santorum was by far the more popular candidate, and had there been an even playing field, you'd be seeing Rick Santorum as the candidate, not Romney. Had Rick Santorum been the Republican candidate, people would have had a clear choice. They would have said, oh, I get it. Here's Romney with arch-Catholic views, uh, who wants to turn the clock back, blah, 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 blah. Here's Obama with all whatever his strengths and weaknesses are. They would choose which way they wanted to go as a nation, and they'd go. Now what you have is a muddled election. You have one party, the Republicans in this case, who refused to put forward what they would do 
because they know what they would do would not be very tolerable to the vast majority of voters. And they're asking people, elect us, trust us, we know what we're doing, we're smart people, and we're good business people. Unfortunately, people bought that a few years ago, and they elected George Bush. And the rest, as they say, is history. So right now, people have to be smart. We keep saying that on this program. It's no longer acceptable for you not to be smart, no longer acceptable not to be engaged. You act like your life depends on it, because it does. And if we are lucky, if we can help reinvent our democracy called the United States experiment, which is now over 200 years old, we will not only produce a level of economic abundance that the world will find astounding, but we'll avoid the type of violence that accommodates system breakdowns. Let me just say one last thing about that, and let's let's turn it over to you, Howard, or questions. Mm-hmm. Last thing I want to offer is this: several people, very very smart people, I will, but people who play a key role in the academy, have said to me in the last few weeks, the system is breaking apart; it's going to collapse, and that's a good thing because out of the collapse, a new system will emerge. That's the new consciousness and whatever. My comment to them is this, and I share this with the listeners. Yes, it is more likely than not that you're going to have a system collapse. But it, that's like a balloon popping. And the damage that does is far, far, far greater than if you can slowly let the air out of the balloon so it doesn't have to pop in the first place. I believe people are underestimating the degree of social breakdown that would occur a huge systemic collapse, whether it's brought on by the monetary system, by the political system, or a combination thereof. So I urge us all to look at that and say, gee, do we really want to put ourselves, our children, our grandchildren through the kind of pain which accommodates a system collapse, or would we prefer to be smart, use our advanced intelligence and our technology and our resources to change this thing before it gets so broken we find ourselves again in another civil war? Because the Dred Scott decision wasn't that much worse, frankly, than the the Citizens United decision, and possibly it was actually less harmful. I mean, just one comment on that, Ronaldo, before we move on to our lightning round. Um, it's very easy and very simplistic um, for people, same way people often negate things. It's much easier in politics to negate than be positive about things. It's very easy to be apocalyptic. Um, we even have this sort of human tendency to only see things in big, sweeping pictures. We love disasters. We love chaos. We love watching it. Um, and it has a great appeal to the human imagination that there be radical changes and so forth. But again, I think your your comment is right. In chaos is far, far worse um, than people imagine on, a, on an actual daily level. And, you know, I hear people saying, oh, well, the bank should collapse. Well, maybe they should. But the impact of that for all the people who want them or have been taken advantage of is worse than somehow finding a way to fix the situation or modify it. Um, and I think people tend to underestimate the damage of apocalyptic visions that they might hold and also overestimate the potential for that happening. And it's, it's, it's just sort of dangerous. But let's move on to lightning well, but, uh, that's a, you know, Howard, that's a great transition into the euro crisis. By the way, we have a question from David Copra, who wrote us last time, that we weren't able to deal with on the air. It had to do with financing energy efficiency retrofits. At some point, I want to make sure that we fulfill our promise to David and the other listeners that when we get a question we can't answer, we'll take it up on the next show, and I, I would like to do that. So at some point, let me know when you want me to go into that okay. subject. We can do that right after the lightning round, before our financial literacy, if you like. Okay, let's and do it. Okay, so okay. let's use the transition. So you said banks collapse. That's a good place to transition to the euro crisis, right? Uh, we're going well, to- that would be our second topic, so let's hold that. Let's get, okay. let's get our, our lightning round first. 
Okay. Uh, again, a series of quick insights that Ronaldo usually shares on bonds, equities, gold, real estate, and other asset classes. Um, and what would you like to say today, Ronaldo? On these. Well, days? let's start with um, you know, um, if, if we miss one, we'll tell you, folks. But if we if we consistently get something right, we want you to know that too. If, for those of you who have been following my tweets, and I hope that more of you will, because that's how I keep you posted between these shows, these monthly shows. Um, we've been talking for three weeks now. Uh, actually longer than three weeks, about how oil would come down. And uh, we started saying that when oil was way above $105 a barrel, as I recall. I it's, uh, it's down it's again. 110 yeah. 110 yeah. It's now down to the high 80s. I just want people to know that that will continue. Uh, I'll be happy to give the reasons why. But oil is, um, it, there's more downward pressure on the price of oil right now than upward pressure. And you will see that uh, slowly but surely being reflected at the gas pump. It's taken a long time to get to the gas pump because um, the oil companies have been using the differential to further prop up their egregious profits. But you're even seeing it in places like California, which has the longest delay time between prices of oil dropping and the price of the pump. And we're now down to $4.03. I just want to make one comment about that, about oil. Um, It was very apparent, and again, we've been talking about this, show after show after show, that oil is a manipulated commodity, and that it happened last spring, it happened this spring, that just as the economy began to ratchet up, the oil industry raised the prices, made exorbitant profits, channeled those monies back into the political process, and then when reality hit that, in fact, there isn't sufficient demand, prices began to drop, again, almost 30% uh, from their peak. However, in that process, gas at the pump which truly fuels the profits of the oil industry, decreased only ever so slightly. And its drop was biggest in the East Coast, Texas, conservative states, uh, swing states. And it stayed the highest in California and on the West Coast, which tend to be Democratic bastions. And the excuse from the oil industry was, well, refineries are offline and... You know, the repair is being done. Very disingenuous um, comment from the oil industry as to why suddenly we're paying a dollar more in California for the same gallon of gas that somebody in Ohio is spending, or Texas. Texas is even lower. Well, these are anomalies that that the media consistently fails to pick up on. Well, the media. Investigate and examine. The media is hopeless. By the way, I did put a tweet out more than a week ago. I am so excited that there's finally a new show in the morning that's full, that really is a new show. Please watch it. Tell your friends to watch it. Tape it and watch it later if you have to. Charlie Rose, CBS Morning News at 7 a.m. local time, is finally real news. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's the only real news on the air that you don't get from Jon Stewart. I've got to tell you. And, and Ronald, do you want to remind people how they access you on Twitter? I think it's um, my hash, World Business. We should find that out and, and um, just go to our website and click on it. But uh, we'll we'll make that announcement. Uh, uh, we'll send out a we'll send out a uh, well we'll make sure it's on the front page of the, of the website. But I think it's uh, hashtag World Business. Okay. We'll, I'll Thank double you. check that. Uh, Again, getting back to your asset classes, uh, obviously oil. No, 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 no stay with oil. So, so back to oil. So the point of that story was: remember at the beginning of this hour, I said the one most important thing is people's consumers' ability to purchase thrives what's good for them. Put your money where your values are. Well, people have been much more careful about driving. 
And what I continue to urge people, if you want to see lower gas prices in California, forget the people who don't agree with you. Just take the 50% of the people that do agree with you politically and drive 2 to 5% less. Anybody can cut their driving 2 to 5%. Anybody. You will be shocked at how easy it is to cut 2% of your miles out just by choosing to consolidate your trips, uh, to think a little bit before you hop in the car and drive somewhere. If you do that, the downward pressure on the price of oil, which is now dropped down to $4.03 a gallon in some urban areas, and going to drop further, I predict. Why don't you watch that price go down to the high $3 a gallon and feel good about the fact that you forced it by your purchasing power on the oil companies, whether they liked it or not. So I just I put that out for as an initial thought. Keep it up, folks, and you're going to see an improvement in your bottom line. Now, other a- so other asset classes. I get asked all the time about gold. So I'll cover it again. I see as much upward pressure as I see downward pressure on gold. We've been telling people for months now, many months, hold, if you bought it already, you don't need to sell it. If you haven't bought it, now is not the time for sure to do so because it, there's it's too much uncertainty as to which way that price will go. And we predicted at least three or four months ago gold would go sideways. It has gone sideways, if anything is a tad down. And I predict that it will continue to go sideways until we see more information in the second half of the show. We'll be dealing with the Greek vote on June 17th. But for right now, if you got gold, hold it. If you haven't bought it, don't bother. If you haven't sold it, keep it. And just see where this thing rides out going forward. Uh, with regard to, uh, I've, I've talked a lot over the years about uh, Brazilian industrial development bonds and what a great rate of interest they pay, fully guaranteed by the Brazilian and, in some cases, the European governments. Uh, some of you have asked me, gee, the price of the real has dropped, therefore the face amount of my bond has dropped. Should I sell? The answer is absolutely not. The real, which was down as low as 48 today, uh, it's been hovering around 49.50 for like weeks now, was as high as over 60. The real is being pushed down by a, a, by a two factors or three factors. One, the Brazilian government wanted to push the price of the real, the value of the real, down to increase their export opportunities. Two, and that's, that had part of it. Two, they've had a crop failure, and that crop failure has, de- has affected their ability to export soybeans. They're also having one of their biggest customers not buy as much iron ore. But when you look at the country as a whole, it's incredibly stable and incredibly strong. Third issue that's hit Brazil is the flight to safety, as people have been more and more concerned about the international global financial situation and the global economy. They've fled into U.S. dollars, even though we've been printing them like there's no tomorrow. And because of that, all currencies had a... Ronaldo, are you still there? We lost you for a second. Well, it seems we've momentarily lost Ronaldo. Uh, he's got a little technical connection here. Um, let's see if we can get him back online in a second. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to mention that, um, yeah, um, I'm going to see if I can have Ronaldo dial back in, get back online, um, get him online. In the meantime, let me tell you that we do have his Twitter uh, thing, which is simply at Ronaldo Brutico, one word. Uh, and that's how you can access him right there. Um, again, while Ronaldo tries to get back online, again, I apologize for that interruption. Um, let me go on to mention a little bit about um, our financial literacy section, which, again, we're talking about the nature of financial news and um, what we call a million grains of salt. Um, and what I think most people in this time tend to do 
is to watch enormous amount of business news, CNBC, reading the business section of their paper, uh, going on, uh, trying to find out as much as they can. And the basic problem with the way we get our financial news is simply that all of these outlets that produce that news, uh, their primary concern is not about the actual accuracy of that news or about how it is presented, um, but rather about creating ratings. TV stations earn their income by advertising dollars. The more ratings they have, the more uh, volume they generate, uh, the more cash flow they create. And this creates inherent conflict of interest as to about the quality of what they're presenting. The goal of CNBC is not so much to present news to you, but rather to um, have it as such that you will continue to watch the next news segment. And I think I've got Ronaldo back on you. Yeah, Ronaldo? I'm right here, okay. Howard. I don't know right. what happened there, but that was interesting. Right. Anyway, just just catching people up a little bit on our financial literacy while we're trying to reconnect. Yeah. Okay, uh, and just it, simply, but let's finish with the bonds. So what I was saying to people okay. today on the industrial development bonds in Brazil, I think it's a great buying opportunity. If you have excess cash, I would tend to buy more. So let's say that you bought some development bonds at the absolute peak. You paid 60, and you can get them today for 48 real to the dollar. That would give you a great average of around 50, and uh, 55, say, and you would you would be in much better shape, so your yields will probably go up, your face values will improve. I believe over time, I would rather own bonds, Brazilian industrial development bonds, than I would basically U.S. Treasuries. A U.S. Treasury, you get less than 1% yield. Even with the decrease in the in the value of the real, I'm still getting the equivalent of 6 to 9% in most of my real investments. Right. And that's paid just quarterly. Put my wealth advisor hat back on for a moment and remind people that these Brazilian bonds, while having a good interest, having a good long-term prospect, are relatively volatile. And it is not a place to put your short-term money in that you're going to need to be pulling out. These are long-term investments the same way that stocks are long-term investments. Um, and you have to be able to financially ride out the turmoil that may or may not accompany bonds of this purchase. Well, you're dealing not only with the volatility of the bonds themselves in Brazilian but also relative currency issues. Well, that's um, and which we're talking about. And, and you know, I right. say, so frankly, power even that. longer term, even right. longer term in stocks. Right. In other words, when you buy a Brazilian industrial development bond, buy it to hold for maturity. That's my advice to you. And then ride out the fluctuations. Now, if you are unfortunate, and I've had some mature in this down market, you will take a capital loss in the face value of the bond. There's no question, and you can get hurt on that. And there's no such thing as an, as an ironclad, 100% can't miss kind of situation. But what I'm suggesting is that you buy bonds with long-term, long, two or three year up maturities, so that we can ride through this period. The market can sort itself out. And the other reason I like it is because you're not in the casino of Wall Street. Technically, you're in a different casino. You're in the casino of the international monetary world, which in some ways is the worst casino, in some ways is a better one. So it's not like there's any slam dunk certainties. But I, what my point in this uh, comment about asset classes, I like the asset class of a bond issued by a country that doesn't run a deficit, whose major exports are food and fuel at a time when both are going to become increasingly important. And I believe that the short-term disruptions in Brazil are more than offset by the fact that they continue in their fundamentals, which is they continue to grow again this year. Their middle class got larger. Their distribution of income got better. Their, their, their ratio of, of, of exports to imports improved. So in everything that a country can do right, 
with a huge amount behind it, a lot of wind to, to its back, Brazil is doing it right still. And that, over the long term, is a fundamental I would bet on rather than the kind of fundamentals I'm seeing with U.S. Treasuries right now. That's, so that's my point on it. Um, uh, other asset classes, uh, I want to point out We're very the, quick. Brother, let's ask a segue on terms of asset class. Let's talk about energy in general and get to those questions about solar. Uh, that were sent in. Okay, and, let me, and let me had, finish one, one of the ones before ones. we do. One, mm-hmm. Because I think it's really important on the housing market. You're going to hear that as of yesterday, foreclosures went back up. That is the passing of the elephant through the python. I said on the last show last month, and I want to reiterate, we are approaching, if probably have already hit the bottom of the housing market. If you have the need for uh, uh, housing, uh, the prices in housing are not going to get much lower. I think the market currently can absorb the, the very small uptick in foreclosures, and it is washing through the system. In most markets today in the U.S., housing has bottomed out. There are a few where you could say it hasn't quite hit the bottom yet, but it's very close. So I like housing because it's a good price and all-time low interest rates. So to me, if you want to live in a place, not to speculate in a place, but if you're literally buying shelter in a tax-advantaged way with income potential and upside potential, meaning i.e. you live there, buying a house right now in America is becoming increasingly a smart decision. So I do think the market's bottomed out. Do not let the foreclosure statistics fool you or fan your flames of fear. The truth is that that's just a, a release of a bunch of cases that were pending until there was a settlement by the attorneys general of the various states. That settlement went through in April, so you saw an uptick in May in foreclosures as the dam broke. Those will get absorbed through June, July, and August, but there's enough action in the housing market to actually absorb them and not cause a further plunge. Okay, let's leave it there, Howard. That was the asset class I wanted to make sure okay, we talked Very about. good, very good. Well, let's, let's talk about energy a little bit, um, and solar energy in particular. And there's a collection of questions that came in, both from uh, David Copper and a few other people, that I want to kind of condense and summarize. And it's basically to get your feeling about how can we finance uh, effectively, both for individuals and as a nation, how can we effectively finance a transition, an ongoing transition to solar? And, yeah. and what are the best strategies for that? And, and, and by the way, let's not limit it to solar. Uh, David's question specifically relates to solar, but let's talk about the bigger question, which is how do we convert over to renewable energy so that we can reduce the amount of gouging that's going on day after day, week after week, month after month by the oil companies? And my definition of gouging is real simple. Look at the level of profits, and that's after every conceivable benefit they give these guys. I mean, that's after they pay for the corporate jet with an expense. It's after they pay egregious salaries and call it an expense. It's after they, 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 they have platoons of lobbyists in Washington to rig the rules so that it's in favor of the oil companies rather than solar companies. Even after all those egregious expenses, which they're allowed to deduct, even after all that, the profits left are still so embarrassing large, you can't ever obtain that kind of profitability unless you have created an oligopoly or a monopoly. And that's what's going on. So you've got a, what's called a shared oligopoly in the oil world. How do you break it? You have to start using alternative energy. Now, the good news is alternative energy in many classes is today competitive with oil and gas. Now, gas not so much, but we'll come back to gas as a separate issue, but certainly with oil now, how, and, and certainly with coal, by the way. So if you notice, the number of people buying coal, even for utilities, is starting to plummet. Now, that's a very good thing because when you replace a coal-burning plant and you have it burn natural gas – it's half as destructive to the environment, and it's cheaper for the consumer. We'll talk in a, probably another show. We should probably put natural gas and fracking on the agenda for next month, Howard, because I think it's a huge subject we should be talking about with people. 
But for the time being, there's a glut of natural gas globally and in the U.S. It's displacing coal purchases for the next five years, people are predicting, because of long-term contracting. And it's allowing for a conversion of our dirtiest coal-fired plants into a cleaner technology. Now, let's talk about photovoltaic. In some states, Hawaii is an example, where energy costs as much as 39 cents per kilowatt on the big island, you can produce solar energy for far, far less. How to finance that, I'll come to in a moment. But solar energy is clearly a competitor. On that same island in Hawaii, we have great geothermal resources, as we do, by the way, in Japan. Again, and geothermal is much more widely available than people realize. It doesn't require a volcano to make it work. There's geothermal resources all I mean, virtually the entire western part of the United States is sitting on geothermal resources. And so those geothermal resources, we know, once you drill the borehole, can produce energy for as little as $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour. So even if you let the owner of the plant double it to $0.10, cents, it's still less than I'm paying in California at a retail price of 11 to $0.12 cents per kilowatt hour. So we know that the, I won't, uh, biofuels is also there, but not biofuels in the form yet of gasification of biofuels, and we certainly have not yet cracked the technology that you need to make oil from algae, but we have cracked the technology for pellets. And there isn't one pellet plant in America that isn't very, very profitable. In fact, it has all of their, all of their pellets pre-sold for years in advance. So there's a lot of technologies that are very available. Now let's just talk specifically about photovoltaic and financing. Um, one of the things that has arisen is a thing called the HERO program, which is a a way to finance solar cells on your roof 100% using other people's money. The way the program works is great. And by the way, it's only available in a couple of limited areas. There's a parallel type of program um, that's also available in a couple of areas of the country, so it's just getting going. But what it is is it's a, a determination by a, a, usually a municipality within a count, county that says if you put solar on your roof, and by the way, it could also be solar hot water, it can also be energy-efficient appliances. It can be double-pane windows, all of which dramatically decrease their energy consumption. We'll be able to do those improvements on your house. We'll pay for it with our money, the third-party financer says. And we will do it, and, le- and you will pay us less per month than you're currently paying your energy bill. So the customer, the consumer, gets an immediate reduction in their energy bill. At the end of the period of time when the equipment's fully amortized, in the case of photovoltaic, it could be 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. But at the end of that contract, what's on the roof reverts to the ownership of the homeowner. So the homeowner's actually converting their house over now. They're immediately reducing their electrical bill. They're getting a cap on their future electrical bill because it's set for the next period of time under the contract. And when the contract's over, they actually own it. So if people want to know more about that, what I'm going to suggest is that we will put now, we're putting currents out on Tuesday this month. So what we'll do is we'll do a story, watch for it within the next two to three weeks at most. We'll do a, a story. We'll put it on the on the homepage of the website, worldbusiness.org. And uh, I'll probably put out a tweet when it goes up so you'll know it's there. And the idea will be to read about these programs, which uh, used to be known under the general umbrella called the PACE programs. And that, that, that acronym stands for Government Supported um, uh, financing bet that is based upon the homeowner giving a, a priority status like you do to a sewer district or a water district or to a taxing authority so that the person who pays for the stuff on your roof knows they'll get paid back and there's an easy economic way for them to collect the money which comes through your property tax bill. Uh, that's a lot of 
things I just threw out there, so I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if people are still a little confused. But basically, it's it's putting together special assessment districts one house at a time, which permit you to green America one house at a time using third-party financing, and your only liability is to keep paying as little, not as much as you're paying currently for your electrical bill, capped so it doesn't go up over the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years, depending on the term you pick, and at the end of which you actually own the equipment. So it's a great program, and by the way, it does not impede the sale of your house, which was a fear people had, because the actual contract is cleared up as part of the mortgage closing, and it actually adds value to your house because your, your house now operates on a fraction of the cost that it used to because it's saved all that electricity. So that's a, a very quick answer to, uh, uh, to the questions we've been asked. Uh, in terms of what scale the program to be efficient, the most, the only program I know, which is the HERO program, can go down as little as $5,000 or $10,000 worth of improvements on your house. Solar systems tend to cost more than that. Clearly, double-paid windows cost more than that. So almost every home in most parts of the country would qualify. Ronaldo, let's, uh, since we're getting low on time again, uh, and maybe we should do this as a, as a full topic, uh, one of our shows, in great more detail, but let's segue on to our last topic, which is the Eurozone crisis, including this weekend's elections in Greece. Um, we've already talked a little bit about the uh, Brazil. Um, what's going on? What do you think yeah. is happening? I'll do that and just want to make one more point about this uh, Copro email that I got, because he specifically asked about Clinton's book, Back to Work, and the role of utilities uh, and whether or not utilities should be allowed or encouraged to assist in the financing of the conversion. And the answer is absolutely yes, and I'll be happy to talk at greater length if you want to send a follow-up question, David. Uh, and the reason is we've got to give utilities new things to do to make money so they don't have to abuse us by doing the old things badly over and over again. In other words, if you tell a company they're going to be put out of business by what you're doing, they're not going to be very cooperative. If you say, look, which you used to be in the horse and buggy business, and now we're going to put you in the automobile business, we're going to help you get there. As long as you can transform your company, we can transform the way it makes money. Uh, they become happy campers. And my idea would be let's turn the utility companies into the finance vehicles to green America, and they'll make more money at it, frankly, and they'll be helping America solve its energy problem, and it will be their new business as opposed to the old business, which was called burning coal. Okay, um, that was that quick wrap-up on that. You you asked about the euro crisis, uh, Howard. Let me just segue to that. And, and you mentioned earlier in the show the idea of uh, the banks, and a banking collapse isn't such a pretty thing. What happened in Spain last week is that the um, we now know that when the game of chicken got played to its fullest extent, the Europeans blinked and said, okay, to the Spaniards, we will give you enough money, in this case 100 billion euros, to bail out your banks who are in crisis, just like the U.S. banks went into crisis in 2008. We'll do it with no strings attached at this time, although there's still all kinds of dickering going on. Um, but basically... We won't force you to take additional austerity measures in order to get that money because you, Spain, weren't engaged in profligate conduct like the Greeks were. You literally had a legitimate banking crisis, which they did, just like ours, because of the same stupid, greedy people. And by the way, I want to, before the show ends today, I want to talk to people about something that happened in Europe yesterday to restrict bankers' salaries. <laughs> I'm very happy about it. Happy, a good point of the compass. But back to the to the Spanish banks. So the Spanish banks got 100 billion billion euros, so that they wouldn't have to collapse because they can't they can't refinance all the bad debt they've got in their books from their housing crisis, and frankly their renewable energy uh, balloon bo popped as well. Now, 
that bailout is different from bailing out the Greeks who have a problem that they can't collect enough taxes and spend twice as much as they do collect and have everybody working for the government. Now, Spain has the highest unemployment rate today in Europe, 25%. The Greeks is much lower than that. The Greeks are going to vote on June 17th, so in just uh, three days. And if they vote to stop the austerity program, which I don't blame them, is what I would probably do if I was Greek. There's going to be a crisis in Greece because they will then be forced from the Eurozone, which may be a good thing. And we argued on the show a long time ago about setting up a neo-drachma. I wish the Greeks had have listened to that because they could have stayed in the Euro and gotten their drachma back. They didn't do that. So now they're in an either-or position. And what the Greek people are saying, even though the level of unemployment is still not as high as the Spanish level, we aren't going to do any more austerity. We're tired of you trying to cut us back to prosperity. And the lesson I want to say to the Americans is, eight governments in Europe have now fallen over the question of trying to cut our way back to prosperity. It can't be done. A ninth government in the U.K., Cameron's government, should have fallen by now. It's amazing that it hasn't. Because nine countries have tried austerity and it has failed everywhere. Or as Paul Krugman said recently, we've had this amazing social experiment where we put 350, billion, 350 million people called Europeans at risk. And what we found out is the obvious is true. You can't cut your way to prosperity, meaning the more you cut, the lower your economy goes, your GDP drops. As your GDP drops, the ratio of your debt to GDP goes up. So you can't possibly pay your debt down because your economy's sinking. The only way you can rebalance an economy is to start some growth, and together with some belt tightening as growth is occurring, begin to change the ratio of debt to GDP. It's the ratio of debt to GDP that's the question, not the total amount of debt. So for those of you listening who are in America, remember, the Republicans are proposing austerity for us. That's the Paul Ryan budget. That is insane. It is insane on every level. It's failed in nine countries in Europe. It's failed every time it's ever been tried, and it will fail here. So if you think your economic horse is at stake in this race, it absolutely is. Anything that even closely approximates, even looks or smells a little bit like the Ryan budget, is a suicidal pact for economic failure, personally and collectively for the nation. So on the 17th of June, the Greeks go to the polls. And it's a central question. Are we going to keep playing this austerity game, or are we going to throw the buggers out? Now, the buggers in this case are the two parties that have ruled Greece for 40 years collectively. Both of the principal parties, think of them like the Republicans and the Democrats. They've ruled Greece for 40 years. And what the public is saying is, we have had it with these clowns. Where is the outside-the-box thinking? If, so we are going to have a worse economic thing for a while? Okay, maybe we've got to push the restart button, because our political system is fundamentally broken, and it has failed us. Now, the Greeks are therefore the test of a bigger question. I want to point out, however, that what the Greeks do to drop out of the euro, in my humble opinion, does not affect the ultimate status of the euro. You're talking about a total economy in Greece that's less than 1% of the euro, the euro group. So it'd be like me telling you that a small town with 50 people are going to vote uh, to put the Green Party in, and that will make the Greens a national party. The answer is it won't. Okay? The, the key issue to watch for here, though, the Greek vote, is when the Greeks vote, and I think they will, they'll vote to end austerity, which is the right answer, Unfortunately, they haven't got a way to do that easily with the, Euro, with the European Union, and I'm hoping they'll negotiate one. The Greeks will be left in the European Union. They'll still have free common trade barriers, uh, trade areas. They'll have all the old rules. They just won't have the euro. 
and they'll be back to printing Greek drachmas, which will likely plunge in value. But as they plunge in value, that will give the Greeks an opportunity to now sell their goods in world markets, and particularly in Europe, at half the price of what they're spent at what it's costing now, which means all the Greek agricultural interests will resume. And there will be other industries that will also become very, very successful in Greece within a period of a very few years, actually. Now, the only thing that will cause this to last longer is the amount of violence and destruction that occur accompanies the collapse. If the Greeks can stay out of the streets and not firebomb each other, and if they can, they, they can basically huddle as a nation and go back to basics, they could go, they could go through this thing as, as quickly as two to three years. We know that because the Argentinians did it in two years when the IMF closed them down and came out stronger, and eventually the IMF backed off. Now, the advantage that the Argentines had is they already had their currency and never gave it up. The Greeks have a double whammy. They actually gave up their currency, so now they're in a situation where they have no currency to rely on, a banking system that was based on a currency that will be pulled from them, and they're also uh, going to have to rebuild their entire economy at the same time. Those are the complexities and the complications of the Greek vote on June 17th. Everybody should be paying attention to it and watch carefully what happens after it. The amount of moving around and maneuvering in the European zone will be revealing. Uh, Howard, is there some portion of that, because you're familiar with it, that I should go into that I haven't covered? Well, I think we're very low on time right now, but I just want to mention that regardless of what happens on Sunday, I think you're going to see massive ripples in the markets um, as institutions and investors try to digest what's going to go on, what's going to happen, and what all this means. And I think everyone should simply be be prepared for that. Um, This is a reality that's going to happen. It was the same thing that happened a month ago when the French had their elections, and I was in Europe, and you could just simply watch and see um, markets fluctuating wildly as they've done the last month. Um, By the way, I think that was a good result in France. I'm glad Hollande won. Right, and it offsets the extreme, more extreme position that Merkel was moving towards of simply cut, 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 and austerity. Um, That there's going to have to be some balance because the question really is, who's paying for the future? Is it the wealthy and the banks, or is it the people in general who pay the taxes that support all of these bailouts that are going? Um, Those are big questions. But we're not going to touch on your German comment. Sixty-nine percent of the Germans according to a recent survey that was posted a day or two ago, 69% of the Germans think the Greeks should leave. So it's not just the Greeks think that they should leave. The Germans think so, too. Right. And I think right. that's a healthy thing. Right, but the reminder is it was the Germans who created the bonds that financed the Greek debt, and those German banks very know, very, know very well what, in fact, they did and that there was no ability to pay these bonds back. So the, the, the guilt and responsibility of this is far more widespread than just a horribly run Greek government and a horribly run country on all in all directions. But we're down to our last minute, Ronaldo, and at this point I want to simply ask you to kind of summarize up uh, our thoughts for today and give us a sense of where we might be going next time. And again, also repeat very quickly um, that if you want to reach Ronaldo on Twitter, it's simply <coughs> excuse me at Ronaldo Brutico, all one word, and that our next show will be again on the second. Uh, Thursday of July, that's the 12th at 11 a.m. Pacific time, and we certainly look forward to hearing all of you then. With that, Ronaldo, let's...
give our summary. Wrap it up. Okay. Uh, and just because I mentioned at the beginning, I wanted to give David a complete answer. And David, and for all those people who are interested in the solar financing issue, if you send us an email and you live in the state of California, for example, we can actually refer you to uh, companies that currently in California are operating where they will own the solar and you put up no money. Uh, there, it, That's state by state. That's the way it works. The only reason I only know the California one is the only one I've studied. Uh, it, in your own state, there probably are similar programs, and you should, with a little bit of due diligence, be able to find them. Okay, that ends that section, section of, the, of the comment. I'd like to say this. You know, China, you're a China scholar, Howard. Mm-hmm. And there's this old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. I just want to point out that I think these are some of the most interesting times that anyone could have imagined. We are at the end of empire in the U.S. It's clearly the empire of the U.S. is over. Now, the question is, how will we end that empire? Will we end it in a smooth transition, which ennobles the people of the world and provides for greater economic opportunity, kind of like what the British did after World War II, or will we go kicking and screaming and dragging everybody down with us? So I think there's a time here for a tremendous amount of maturity that needs to be to occur with the American public. And they need to show that maturity not only in how they vote and how carefully they listen, and frankly how carefully they debate with their neighbors the future of the nation. But they really need to understand that this is a precarious situation where how they do what they do with their political information has to be also matched by what they do with their own beliefs of how to protect themselves economically. So it's time to be politically astute, it's time to be economically astute, because as Rahm Emanuel said, usually it's economics that drives politics, now it's politics that are driving economic conclusions. And so it's time for us to do something about that. My final thought is this. I really believe there is an opportunity here for the, for the globe to emerge, the planet to emerge with a new level of prosperity for everyone that will shock people when they look back 50 years from now. We did not have our best days in 1920 that was ended by 1929. We didn't have our best days in 1820 that was ended by the outbreak of the Civil War in 1860. The same is true on a global level, and I could give you country-by-country examples. The key issue to remember is our future is ours to create. We are empowered if we choose to be so. If you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you can't. Either way, you're right. So this is the time for us to realize we can and to be more engaged than ever in co-creating the future that we want rather than the future that will happen to us because we don't choose to make our own choice come true. It's an empowering time, and I hope everyone of the listeners will tell their friends, turn on to the show, take the Twitter feed, join the Academy in trying to change, in working to change the entire economic system of the planet to one which supports all of your human values rather than one which has been historically somewhat parasitic. Right, and to those closing comments, Rinald, I'd like to add, let's see if we can rename the 1% Robber Barons to the sequel and get the American people to truly realize in every word and every expression what is actually going on in this system, that wealth is beginning to dominate in a way that we have not seen um, in centuries, if not eons. And which isn't good for business. That's the funny thing. It's not even good for business. And with that, again, thank you all for listening, and uh, hopefully you'll see us, uh, listen to us next month. And again, um, look for Ronaldo's tweets in between. A lot of these topics will be highlighted in those tweets. And that, again, that is at, at Ronaldo Brutico, for those of you who use Twitter. And that, let me say goodbye. Ronaldo, thank you. 
and uh, look forward to Thank your you, Howard. Thank you, listeners. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye.